Welcome to the Digital Forester podcast, where we talk to foresters about how they are using digital technologies in their day-to-day forestry work. Hey, hey, everybody. Welcome to the Digital Forester podcast. Today, it's great pleasure to bring you Dr. Tomo Karane from Arbonaut. And Tomo, this is your chance now to set the record straight in how badly I pronounced your name. So for our, our, our Finnish viewers and listeners, please introduce yourself. Yeah. Okay. Thanks a lot, Kevin. And, and really, thanks a lot for having me. It's, it's interesting and very impressive to be talking to, to the Western Pacific Canadian coast. I mean, it's, it's actually not that often that I've, I, I've been there, but I've seen Canada, of course, in many ways, uh, quite similar to Finland and also in terms of forestry being both advanced and quite important so that there's a lot to do on digital forestry. Happy to be here. So, um, yeah, I am uh, Tuomo Karne, a mathematician by training. Actually, I have no education in forestry whatsoever, but like everything, we end up somehow starting our working careers by planting pine trees. You know, this is just, uh, just uh, the way it is here. So, so did I. And uh, it actually served me very well back in the 1970s and 80s. Uh, so I'm not that young anymore since uh, I encountered this uh, young lady at the time in 1980 who was from the country and uh, I was an aspiring mathematician you know pure mathematician more or less a scientist and thought about a scientific career but then this one fateful event uh, changed my life Uh, December 11th 1980 on a short flight from Kuopio in central Finland to Joensu where one of this based I met uh, Aino my spouse uh, for over 40 years now, but then of course she wasn't at the time. <laughs> and I had this difficulty of uh, of uh, exp- expressing my my uh, my my fondness of her. Just a 15 minute flight, but what had happened was that uh, she was visiting a neighboring town, second time in her life on a, on a flight, because her brother had had a serious forestry accident, actually a forest mensuration accident. So Eero had been uh, measuring trees as the practice was at the time at uh, not only at breast height, but also at 6.5 meters height. They had this aluminum rod, which was used to take this uh, diameter at that height. And he was walking in in the misty forest uh, in November and walked too close to a power line. So what happened? The arc hit down and he got electrocuted really, really bad. And he had to spend like six months uh, of, his, of the next six months in a hospital being uh, being patched together and saved back to life. Uh, he hasn't worked as a forester ever since. He's still very keen on forest air, survived the incident. But Aina was there. Uh, his, his left leg had been amputated on that day. And Anna was there staying as long as she could with him in order to return to her job uh, on a night shift as a nurse in a hospital in New So that's why why she was on that flight. And so um, then, uh, you know, the story was so touching that I immediately felt that, okay, this is going to have a lot of importance for me as well. But I couldn't express after 15 minutes that, okay, you're, you're fond of her. 
Finns are famously talkative, you know. <laughs> so, so uh, but what happened was that Aino said that, okay, she would like to stay as much as possible with her brother, but she doesn't really have a place to stay in Kuopio, which was my, my uh, native town. And I said, okay, <laughs> Miss, can I have your, your phone number or address and I will find you a place to stay. I, I was living in Helsinki in the capital myself, but I had half the city where my friends, so I organized her that. And then next time, called her I told her I could also join and visit and then then that's how we started we spent uh, several weeks next every now and then next to Eros bed and he was slowly recovering and and, and 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 getting back his will to live and it wasn't easy I mean certainly he was often very angry at God for having having caused him this but uh, in the end you know he had like uh, three children by the time now he has six children and 15 grandchildren and he's the the guy who manages the, the family forest, so I know. So that's how I got into forest, you know, quite literally, oh, wow. and also into this uh, this uh, forest measurement business. It wasn't the plan in some way, but I realize now, Arbonat has uh, somehow come to change the way forests are measured, as have you, Kevin, and uh, so lighter may not be safe, but at least you don't get to that kind of accidents as, as it was. Yeah, for sure. Well, I, I can definitely say that LIDAR isn't going to result in having six kids and 15 grandchildren <laughs> either. So I, I'm I, I'm not sure about that. But what an amazing story. I didn't know that, Tomo, in the, in the years that we've, we've uh, chatted. What a fascinating uh, origin of how you got into that, that space. Mm. Uh, touch of love and a touch of maybe tragedy as well but that, that's amazing now now you are the ceo of arbanot but as well looking at your profile you're, you're a smart dude and you're also a kid that <laughs> smiles a lot so there's something magical here you have multiple master's degrees i believe multiple phd degrees maybe tell me more about uh is this just a hobby collecting some of these degrees <laughs> or is it just right. you're always learning like share with me that that pedigree with all those degrees from different universities uh, gladly yeah yeah I, I mean i've never planned to be an entrepreneur i come from a family of uh, public servants uh, my only acquaintance with entrepreneurship was two uncles who both went bankrupt so I I wasn't exactly encouraged or even planning in any way to become an entrepreneur and the founder of a company. I was a scientist and very, very keen on mathematics and computer science and so on. And uh, my early years I spent doing uh, actually supercomputers and climate forecasting, weather forecasting. One of the key moments was about five years at the European Weather Center, ECMWF in Reading, that still produces proudly produces the best weather forecast uh, ever known. There's an intense competition between American and uh, European centers, but I think Europe is one area where Europe has stayed ahead. And uh, so it was about this, the, what you can do with computers and so on. But then given this initial state of, uh, of our life, uh, I, I, I wanted to get back to this quite remote location in Eastern Finland, which does have a university, University of Eastern Finland, as it was University of Joensuu, which has a rather nice faculty of forestry, just like, for example, UBC over there in Vancouver. And uh, so uh, I thought that what can a theoretical dude like me <laughs> do in a place like this? And I applied for various kinds of jobs. Nobody wants to hire a mathematical PhD. Besides, I didn't have a PhD, by the way. I was prolonging my studies in many, many different ways. And 
So I enrolled at university first, but then of course the requirement to complete your PhD eventually comes. Now it's different in Finland. These good old days, you know, we we, we didn't aim for a degree. We we uh, we rather have a saying that okay, unfortunately, eventually graduating interrupted studies that had started so well. So <laughs> I, I took my time. I took twelve years <laughs> to complete my first master's degree, but then having this university job, I. Um, obviously had to do it at some point and and we have like three levels of degrees uh, or four bachelor masters then licentiate a finally doctorate so i did all of these in computer science mathematics related fields applied maths uh, featuring a lot of industrial applications and remote sensing gradually becoming part of those so satellite imagery and so on but I held a job, a second job at the university almost uh, all my life. So until until four years ago, in fact, when I finally quit my last university job. And this more or less where it comes. So I've, I've, I taught maybe 10 PhDs and well over 100 uh, masters in engineering. Wow, and amazing. so so, so it, it was always like uh, this is where I earn. And But uh, universities are bureaucratic places. And uh, I wanted to have an impact. And, and this is where it came to finding Arbonaut or founding Arbonaut. Uh, I was actually cheated into becoming a uh, founder. So I wanted to be a scientist, but what happened was that there's this uh, establishment of science parks, the technology parks and that sort of things that's also got very popular in Finland. And this was happening roughly at the same time when Nokia started to become kind of a global star for you the decade or so that it, it had held that position. <laughs> <laughs> before being killed off by Silicon Valley. <laughs> and uh, and then uh, Joensu is no exception. So once you have a university, you need to have some kind of uh, foundry for startups. And uh, there was one here, a science park, and they pretty much offered that. They set up the company. I can I can just concentrate on some applications that issue machine vision applications in industry. And and one of the targets we had was just happened to be analog uh, aerial photography of Malaysian forests. So we actually started uh, in the south. And that's one of the nice things about the University of Eastern Finland. It's very international, both research-wise and student-wise. And, and we had applications of forests uh, all over the world. So it became quite clear that this would be somehow the most reasonable thing to do in an otherwise rather provincial university. And, and uh, and yeah, then I realized also later on, you know, actually, I did, <laughs> there was a venture capital VC stage in Arbonaut where we were doing something totally different. That was about uh, mobile mobile phone positioning. So we, we actually built together with some Finnish partners the first mobile phones with GPS and mapping services in those. And that became Arbonaut's first business and we got funded. And I was, in fact, told to, to sell uh, all forest technology we had developed by that time to, to somewhere. And they ended up in the U.S. Uh, in the hands of Adam Roussel, who was uh, living in Dodgetown, north of Philadelphia. And uh, he he purchased uh, my, my forest technology and my forest team, four people strong at the time. Uh, fortunately, unfortunately, he wasn't actually in the end able to pay for it. <laughs> so I became a shareholder in this U.S. company that was doing forestry while struggling my way through these mobile location services and so on that eventually ended in the dot-com collapse. So that, okay, I had like 60 people and I had to fire them all. And I was left with uh, with one guy, one programmer and two customers and with a single project each, both in forestry. 
So that moment in 2003 became decisive for Urbanaut. And yeah, at the same time also, I got back my forest technology from the US. We had several sojourns in the US later on. And, and again, <laughs> maybe right now, but <laughs> it's been a bit like on and off. So, so uh, that's how Urbanaut ended up focusing on forestry, mostly because realizing that uh, in this small place, Joensuu has a population of 70,000 or so, Forestry is by far the strongest discipline and also the the deepest the base of knowledge of, of where to develop uh, technology. And after having been this mobile uh, telephony business, internet business for a while, you know, I, 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 I wanted something where things move a bit more slowly. Yes. <laughs> not that, yes. Forestry is definitely like that, but not that I, <laughs> I want it this slowly as they have proven to prove. And this is something I'm, I'm, I'm sure you share, Kevin, that this... Yeah. We always want this growth to be faster and change to be faster. It it just isn't the way trees grow or forestry changes. Sure. But but yeah, for sure. Well, well, one of the things I love speaking with people like you is 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 you're so humble and modest. So I I'm going to do a bit of uh, your speaking. <laughs> so um, you know you're you're approaching thirty years in in business. So as we think about companies that often don't even make the two year mark. Um, mm. the reason for celebration here. And I, when I looked at, um, you, you know, did a bit more research, right, in terms of Arbonaut, you've worked in 30 plus countries, um, yes. which is just amazing, like over 100 plus projects. Um, mm. and, and as you describe, I know this VC and the this individual tree inventory, I just want to let the, the listeners and, and viewers know that this was in the 1998 timeframe. Mm. So, so this is before, it's the right word, I don't want to, there's waves of technology innovation and, and Tuomo, you're involved with the very first one that probably a lot of people don't, don't realize. So today where a lot of people talk about individual tree inventories, um, mm. you and Arbonaut were the first ones with this mm. technology that are talking about this intellectual property. So I just wanted to kind of bring that to the forefront because as we're talking about some of those, those, those adventures and maybe missteps, uh, missteps the work you've done is is truly fascinating and I want to kind of poke a little bit in there because you also have software products like there's there's mm -hmm. a lot there so maybe thinking of your background and with Arbonaut and and maybe we we jump into it and say LiDAR and Force Inventory as one of the pioneers in the early 2000s mm -hmm. um, is the world what are you doing today? Because I know you're doing a lot of carbon work as well, a lot of remote sensing, mm. very mm. technical forestry work, which is perfectly aligned mm. with the theme mm. of this podcast. What about maybe how much of the forest inventory work are you doing today? Is it is it does it dominate your business or has other players in the space? I don't want to say caught up, but maybe the technology is commoditized isn't the right word either. But lidar is prevalent, whereas you know, you and I back in the day was, you know, the newest thing, you know, shooting at mm. pulse rates. Mm. How much mm. of that is Arbonaut's business now, or is it more on the carbon red plus types of programs? No, I, I would still say that our spearhead, the part where we want to show our skill is still very much based on airborne lighter, airborne laser scanning. I mean, we do the whole range of things to some extent, but uh, we haven't found any other source of forest information that is as robust and reliable as, as LiDAR. We do a lot of data fusion. Now, 
algorithm-wise, this is where my my weather forecasting background helps uh, helps us a lot. So that it brought two things. First of all, that weather forecasting center was totally global already. When I when I went there, I said that okay, this is the kind of I, I want to build a company that resembles this weather forecasting center. You know, weather doesn't respect borders, so therefore no do forests so so we need to understand them from an ecological point of view but the second was this data fusion the idea that okay a good weather forecast you know has a computer model that simulates the atmosphere and then it has a lot of observations measurements of various kinds that are very heterogeneous each have their own error patterns and you try to merge them all globally i mean weather forecasting because that, that european weather center really produces global weather forecasts like up to two weeks ahead and nowadays even seasonal ones uh, three months and so so what happens is that you have to have the right statistics and mathematics in order to not create systematic error or bias in this and bias kills even in forestry <laughs> and so going back to this uh, individual tree recognition actually this uh, this dawned on us very strongly on our first american venture with, with adam russell i want to acknowledge adam's role in sort of a being a, a kind of a sparring partner and, and, and business partner in many ways in the past and maybe in the future as well. But what happened that he took the technology and he had this great idea that he wants to, uh, I mean, that was still based on analog aerial imagery, but we did individual 3D canopy segmentation. So this whole idea of segmenting canopies by image segmentation type techniques from aerial photography was uh, how Arbona started this ITD. And luckily we had this first LIDAR trials by Juha Hüpp and uh, Eric Nesset and others nearby. So we, we ended up applying the same method to uh, LIDAR, which is much easier, obviously, because you get the canopies are easier to, they, they are symmetric, whereas in, in, in aerial photography, they are inherently asymmetric. So what happened that we did this individual tree segmentation and estimation calibrated on field plots, which is still basically what we do. But some of the customers, I think the, the one who really did it was Boise. They they cut down one, one full stand or cut block and measured every single trunk and showed us the result. And we had systematic error, basically. <laughs> I then realized that individual tree detection, if you if that's the only thing you do, has this problem that you see only the top canopy layer and the big trees, and you don't get a signal of whatever is beneath. And thereby, if you calculate the sensors of your trees and the volume, you get the wrong diameter distribution. You systematically violate the rules of nature by, by the nature of your remote sensing. And this was exactly the thing we had been battling with in weather forecasting. You try to avoid it by all means. You know, you have to have statistically uh, correct uh, ensemble forecast as, as, as they say so so then lighter kind of result that because it reaches the ground and so on but we had to change the algorithm completely for a while and this is where we ended up adopting something quite similar to what Eric Nesent and Matti Maltamo had, had, had tried that this area-based method so that is statistically correct but it kind of uh, misses the trees for the forest, you know. <laughs> it, uh, it it produces result on this grid and everything is the statistical variable, fair enough, but you'd like to see somehow trees as well. So what we nowadays do is, is we combine the two. We always calculate the basic statistics with area-based method, but we do also segment individual canopies. And luckily, most often we were able to get uh, dense enough lighter. So the limit goes somewhere between five and 10 points per square meter. 
where you can reliably detect canopy polygons. Mind you, those canopy polygons are still not yet trees. They are canopy polygons. And the number of stems on each canopy polygon is a random variable with uh, it doesn't always even have to be integer valued because most of like must like to think about them integer valued. So there's only a fixed number, a natural number of tree stems underneath. So that's how you know the science has, in a way, been slowly migrating. But uh, what has happened uh, since then, where we are most active nowadays, is is uh, how do you interpret this data in in terms of richness of applications, especially what other things you can see, not just raw material for lumber and timber industry or pulp industry, the worst, you see a forest. You see what kind of, you know, structure the forest has. We nowadays very often count the dead trees in order to see how do we have decaying trees, trying to quantify biodiversity. I mean, we are really still quite far from reliably doing that, but we have some, some ways of producing surrogate variables that correlate with the richness of biodiversity. Water flow. Um, that's also something where LiDAR excels that, okay, you actually get a really nice terrain model and you can calculate the water flow even on very flat wetlands, which we have plenty of in Finland and I presume also in Canada, at least on the <laughs> on the areas where they are prevalent uh, so that uh, you can start calculating the water, water balance and the water table of the, of the area. So in that way, mostly what we now do is producing a richer, ecosystem perspective of the forest, but it's still forest inventory. Now, in order to have that, and the Arbonaut's fundamental goal has for a long time been to make this kind of good forest science have a positive impact on, on the world. And uh, for me, that is more geared towards ecology than economics, although both have to be taken into account. And, and even the social, the human side, especially when you're down in the global south, be that Africa or Asia. So in every country, we have kind of a different pattern of what kind of forest information is needed and for what decisions this is used. But these forest information systems or forest management systems that we produce, they, they are meant to help the practitioners of this forestry, the planners, to make better decisions based on the data that forest inventory produces. And quite early on, we sort of wanted to build uh, build up both sides simultaneously to be able to do it. But it was also a matter of survival. That, I mean, we don't own any aircraft or scanners, so often we're up against uh, remote sensing uh, endeavors that have this capacity. On the other hand, we are not an IT integrator. We don't hire people for for you know for for like agile technologies. Normally, agile methodology means that you. We try to bundle them into with uh, some kind of a service contract, but in practice, our most common project, uh, most common uh, business form is still a project. So right, right. Yeah. So, so thinking of that rich experience with with lidar and imagery and individual tree segmentation, where the world is today, there's again, there's always we've seen the waves over the you know every decade. There seems to be a wave of things people maybe talk about the same thing every every mm. decade or so but in your experience where are we today now at the individual tree inventory level like you mentioned you're you're basically doing a hybrid approach with a area based and an individual tree approach um, based but there's folks out there that are also selling you know individual tree technologies do you think we're still chasing the 
the holy grail, if that's the right word, or it's still a complex problem to solve that we're not not there yet, or 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 do you think we're we're already there and yeah more tweaking? I think what yeah thanks, Kevin. I I think we are we're actually looking at the fractal fractal landscape fractal mental landscape <laughs> so it's that, uh, some of our listeners are going to go fractal what and so yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because there's always you know richard feynman used to say there's plenty of space uh, down there you know <laughs> down at the bottom and and this is certainly true of uh, forests you know there's a lot of things that get eventually so microscopic that no amount of remote sensing is going to dig that up so it kind of depends uh, whether the main purpose of of these surveys of, of forest inventory is for simply quantifying your 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 amount of timber for sawmill purposes, or whether you really want to, for example, create a payment system or or some kind of compensation for preserving biodiversity or carbon. Carbon is like obviously a massively simplified. Uh, quantity to, to to do but it has relevance to climate and uh it it has a semi-working market i would say i mean i i haven't really seen working carbon markets uh, yet but there's both the project-based approach uh, normally using vcs standard and supported by vera or then there is the jurisdictional level where we are more active which is uh, typically like building the capacity in a country to quantify the forest in the first place and monitor deforestation and forest degradation. But I think I could I could briefly hear for those uh, of your listeners who are having access to video to share my screen and show one example of, uh, of what I think that uh, forest uh, inventories will look like in the near future, in some to some extent already now. So I'll share it and now I'm share. Are you seeing a map, Kevin? I am, yes, looks good. So for our viewers, you'll be able to see this for our listeners. Um, Tuomo's just showing a, a web map with some data and we'll do our best to describe it. But um, if you really wanna see it, hop onto the YouTube side to, to visualize it. But yeah, Tuomo, take it away. Yeah, okay, okay. So I'll, I'll zoom out a little bit. So you'll see we are somewhere up in the North, actually on the Swedish side. And then I'm going to zoom in, and, and this is a relatively large property of uh, less than 100,000 hectares that we have done uh, a detailed inventory in, and it's a boreal forest up in the north, but uh, which is both used for, mostly used for for timber production, but because it's up in the north where the, you know, the age of trees typically gets uh, up to over 100 years before they are harvested, so you have to be careful with the value. And, and, and what you see now first is uh, simply the stand volume um, color-coded. You On the right-hand side, there's like how much timber there is. But what we really normally want to see is much more detail. And I'm gonna go into canopy height. I mean, this is the canopy height model. So many of you uh, are quite familiar with this. And uh, here you can see the, the more red it is, the taller the tree. And there's a clear cut here with some uh, seedling uh, trees left uh, standing and so on. But now the other kind of things that we might uh, want to see of the forest, I'll, I'll pick this off and we'll take the species map. And this is often much more interesting. Now, here we have a particular color coding that uh, 
that uh, orange and red are deciduous in mostly birch up, up there in the north. Uh, the, the purple is uh, pine and the green is spruce. And uh, when we zoom further down, you see that actually we have this data now at individual canopy level. Uh, the borders of the polygons not visible here, but they are basically segmented into individual trees. And then the kind of things uh, about from, you know, you, you can, can do a tree diameter uh, like this. Okay, it takes now a while to, or maybe I try tree volume. Let's see if it's any faster. <laughs> Sometimes, yeah, there's a little red blinking there, which uh, says that it's loading, loading, loading. <laughs> Yeah, this is the, the the challenge. You already see one one practic, uh, practical challenge of, uh, of uh, individual tree information that even if it's vector data, it's massive. There are literally how much trees? We would have roughly 80 million trees on this area. So getting those uh, polygons uh, down will, will seemingly take uh, maybe even too long. I'll, I'll see if I can... It's it's not really worth waiting, so I'll, I'll I may rather move to the other other layers and 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 see sure. which can. And, and this thing you're showing, Tomo, this is something like your clients you would provide your clients as a way to interact with the the data products or information products you you create for them. Yes, yes, exactly. And okay. and and you can see I, I will read here some of the uh, variables that we calculate from this and and show those of those that can be so. Uh, it starts from stand volume, site index, canopy height, tree diameter, tree volume, and the species map. There's also nature value classification, which is basically FSC standard. Okay. So you have to have like these different levels of conservation. <clears throat> and, and we estimate this from the parameters that we calculate. And this is done at the grid level, as you see from the, from the shape. Then... Uh, we have canopy structure map, and that is actually quite interesting. It tells how homogeneous versus layered your canopy structure. Now, if it's strongly layered, it typically means it's the forest that has been clear cut in the past, has been harvested, and now second layer is growing. But if you have a lot of mixture, that is liable of being old forest, or at least you know more more natural than this. So this is one of the things that emerges out of lighter and lighter alone. So remembering the thing that you need the tree height uh, distribution to get. Then we identify dead trees and dead tree groups for biodiversity. And those we standing dead trees, we can identify automatically out of the area. And then there's simply a clustering algorithm that tells that when you have a group of dead trees that might contain valuable biodiversity. It also might be a bark beetle destructed site, but uh, luckily up, up in the north, they don't have these problems yet. <laughs> they will come and I know in BC, you know very well what the bark beetle can do. So we are facing it now because of climate change and uh, climate getting warmer. Southern Finland is already having some incidents and central Europe is really devastated by, by that. So uh, I'll take those off. Uh, there's three carbon, yes. So we also calculate the amount of carbon, but there's maybe for the benefit, there, there's really no working carbon market in Scandinavia or Europe. In fact, governments take the carbon for their EU mandated reporting on, on, on carbon sinks and carbon emissions and so on. So they, they go under the Kyoto Protocol and there's a, like an emerging private market, but the 
border between the public market, private market is not clear, and that kind of prevents massive growth of the of the. Oh, interesting. I, I wasn't aware. I wasn't aware of that. That's uh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But there are trials now and there certainly Canada and US have been ahead of ahead of Europe as a whole. But uh, but we'll see. I mean, it, it would definitely be good if we had like a good measurement quantities for both carbon and biodiversity that are predictable enough and objective enough to 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 justify investment, because that would then bring, you know, a different type of uh, capital resources to, to forestry and also forest management, forest conservation. They would allow us to, you know, enhance the value of forest by much more qualitative things than than just as raw material. It's still the pain in a forest dependent, the forest industry dominated country like Finland that roughly two thirds of our forests are just basically a forest field. They may grow a hundred years, but it's still just to be cut and, and, and there's this... Uh, National controversy or international controversy, and not unknown in Canada either. That okay, what you should do. And uh, I'd like to reward forest owners for also seeing the other side of uh, their trees. Then we do things like forwarder mobility. Um, I wonder how fast or slow is this to load? So just for harvesting, okay, here you see. So here's an interesting color code. I hope it emerges a bit more widely here. So. If something is very blue, it means it's too wet and you may sink your harvester or forwarder. If something is uh, very red or yellow, it means that uh, there's an inclination. And those are, that you have a lot more in BC than we do here, but uh, we, we don't have to do in practice cable yarding in, in, in uh, Nordic countries mostly, except Norway. And uh, so this dictates where you can drive your harvester and whether you can drive it just uphill or even along the slope. And, and this is where red means that only uphill is possible. Or red means that you can't drive at all. It's too steep. Uh, orange means that you can drive uh, uphill, but you can't drive sideways. And if it has no color, then, then it means that you can drive any way you like, except for the blue part where you sink your harvester into, <laughs> into a bog. So, so that, <clears throat> that sort of thing. And then... Uh, we also have this map of seasonal harvestability, which tells in what season you're you're able to go and do your harvesting. So there's actually a lot of places where you can't go except in midwinter when we still have permafrost and the, the, the ground carries uh, the machinery. But, uh, but there we go. All right. So and lots finally, of, lots of data yeah. layers there. So you're leveraging uh, the data to its fullest potential. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's exactly. So that's that's what I wanted to show. Like this, is where I think we are. That here you can see harvest ten-year harvest plans uh, by stands. So we automatically produce the stands, and uh, and then semi-automatically, let's say according to customer demand, specify their yield and their planned operations and so on. Right. I'll stop sharing here. Okay. No, that's so great. We'll that's great. For, uh, great to see the the products live and. Live in action. Yeah. Whenever you do a live demo, you you got to sweat a little bit, right? Otherwise, right. It'd be a live <laughs> demo. So so thanks for sharing that. And and so with the software side, I know uh, on the Arbonaut website there's Arbo Firm, there's Arbo Fizz, and there's Pro MS. Maybe mm. for our listeners and viewers, tell us more about that because what you showed us just now would that would that fall mm. under the Arbo Fizz? Yes, yes, you were right. Uh, or actually, we were looking at it from, <laughs> but uh, but what happens is that we have uh, we have like internal production in engines, and the the most important is Arbo lidar, 
you know, that's like a, already a 20 year old tool of kind of family of tools, a library where all these statistics and calculation and sample plots and, and whatever, you know, the kind of things that customers don't do, but we need to do internally and we didn't have it automated. So, so it's, uh, it's the environment where point clouds turn into forest knowledge. And uh, then this data is fed uh, to various other systems for decision-making support and uh, Arbofis is basically a forest management uh, system, but we don't really go into forest uh, planning. I mean, this is where we so have set the limit that uh, trying to do. So we don't sell systems to forest owners in order for them to plan. Actually, most of our customers uh, for that are big governmental forest agencies. So forest owners like the Finnish uh, National Port of Forest, which uh, hosts 9 million hectares of Finnish forest. So they they... Uh, we tailor these systems for their needs and their business processes. But our own products, like Arbofis, is a platform that allows this tailoring to take place. It handles basic things like forest stands and, 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 and reporting and parameter um, generalization and stand delineation manually and this sort of stuff, so stuff quite well. But it's just like the bare bones version of that. And then Arbo Firm is uh, specialized for forest fire management. So that's a totally different community. They need the same same information, but in a totally different format. So they, they need to uh, know the amount of fuel, uh, the flammability, um, possible locations of fire breaks, uh, water sources, you know, all this stuff. In fact, uh, one of my first... Uh, First uh, active employees in this site uh, is a really nice lady from Vancouver Island, uh, Janice Burns, who had been serving like six years as a firefighter, airborne firefighter in, <laughs> in Canada. So she used to do this abseiling in the middle of a fire, you know, something that you would never dream of doing in Finland. But but over there you have this, uh, these uh, brave hearts who are able to, to, to do that. So Janice uh, now lives in Vienna and works at UFRO, the Organization of Forest Research, but but she was an Arbonaut trainee. And um, I would say like, a, not really yet a lifelong lens as we've known about 10 years, but uh, but so, so all of this created this sense for what kind of uh, software tools might help in firefighting and still we are not providing anything for the guys in the field or guys and gals in the field it's it's in this planning management center or fire fire managers uh, tool that okay this is where i have my crew this is where the fire seems to be raging right now our plan with that arbo firm is to use if possible nationwide or provincial lidar to produce uh, a preparation map you know a map which allows you to to decide what to do no matter where the fire starts because you have the basic information things like vertical canopy gaps you know that whether you have enough space between your brush and your lowest branches of your canopy so that the fire is unlikely to jump to a canopy fire in canada of course a lot of <laughs> provinces you have this situation far north where you can't do anything anyway i mean there's no no access no results but also not necessarily a lot at risk if there's a pipeline or a First Nations community, then obviously you have to mind it. But that's satellite-based work. So so we mostly focus on uh, small-scale, detailed uh, fire suppression planning and also prescribed fire 
management that okay this way you want to now reduce the amount of fuel by prescribed burning but uh, it's it's still a dangerous game as, as i think all canadians would know since uh, fort mcmurray and uh, it's it's never going to be complete it's also crucial for, from the climate point of view so we sure. try to provide a tool that will uh, help mitigate uh, the, the damage of forest fires but it, it can't stop them yeah for sure so recently um <clears throat> there's an announcement from x prize about a competition yeah. where um around forest fire or, or wildfire and uh -huh. space-based wildfire detection and intelligence the requirements okay. so, so just a few million dollars to be won <laughs> you know, who, who would be interested in that but there's two requirements one is um to detect uh within one minute uh wildfires at the state mm. country level all within one minute and then okay. two, then you have 10 minutes to then um generate a precise report where you flag you know mm -hmm. what the false pauses and whatnot mm -hmm. and not to if you're if you're if you're going to go after i uh, not not to not to get you to share your secret sauce but yeah. what are your thoughts when you hear that one minute to detect that let's like continental level and then you got 10 minutes after that to then refine the report crazy or is this in the art of the possible it's it's in a way overkill and kind of dangerously <laughs> maybe ah. most uh, resources and planning and thoughts into into uh, into somewhat inappropriate direction um, there are places yes where even one minute would be so of course for this um, uh they it's important that you set up a really ambitious goal um, at some point, I've been following closely, even collaborate with Aurora Tech. You know, it's one of those companies which definitely would sub uh, submit. They had, for example, this key idea that they can communicate the location of a fire using SATCOM rather than waiting for the download at, at northern latitudes. So, so there are companies who are able of doing it. But, uh, but um, the way I see it, that in most most cases, this. Um, you know, 80% of the benefits uh, of fire mitigation is achieved before the fire starts. It's in prevention and not in suppression. All that is meant, of course, to make suppression efficient and fast so that you know where you are. But uh, our view is more like that if you have all the necessary basic knowledge everywhere, then no matter where the fire starts, you know what to do. You know what your resources are, where where to deploy them, and so on. And so that this will probably help uh, mitigate fire risk uh, more effectively than than only fast detection. So it's it's one side of the equation. It's it's one way we deliberately don't play because there are indeed others, and there are already reasonable somehow reasonable services, EFIS and others, which are based on the VIRS and OSIRIS instruments. So they. They they bring you you know within a few hours normally. In there are cases when this is too too late. Certainly when you're in California or or Mediterranean climate, this tends to be the case. But even there, like preventing <laughs> fires to the extent that it it's it's possible. Now here the problems actually are somehow more more vicious because it it kind of requires that there's a need. An economical motivation or economic uh, need to reduce, for example, the brush. There should be a market like 
biofuel or whatever that, that you do. This is pretty much the case in Finland. So we harvest most of our forest. And because of that, there's a very dense uh, forest road network. That means that uh, ground-based fire engines can reach. Uh, we also have the country still reasonably densely populated. You know, they said that <laughs> we, we regard Lapland as sparsely populated. That is about one third of Finnish area. But uh, they say that uh, if you go above the 60th latitude in Canada, the entire area from Yukon to Labrador has as many people as Lapland. <laughs> yeah. And it's so almost 100 times bigger. So yeah. so talk about sparse population. So so uh, it's, it's kind of relative. But uh, so that means that... Uh, that the, the it's kind of the fog of war you know i i really like that term that 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 is uh, the hardest that you don't know where the fire is what is happening and and what to do and even if you find the fire it takes a lot of time to somehow you need to send a, a field crew there to survey the area first with drones typically and and so on so for our purpose we said okay why not to do this offline beforehand using lidar have all those maps digitally and if needed even paper or you know there are a lot of reasons why digital systems in in, in a fire sensitive situation are not the best so it's it may stay in the management center commands go to the field crews or you may want to print quickly and 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 have a kind of fireproof paper map of the situation for those those guys who really need to go there so they're like multiple directions but they all come with their own set of problems and i think for the x price this is uh, perfectly good and, and and switch their their portfolio but uh yeah yeah okay all right there's nadia our uh cleaner. we have a retired persons club here that that is three people strong i'm one of those i'm, I'm technically retired <laughs> <laughs> nadia is, is uh, our russian cleaner who was uh volunteered to work here after she retired because she enjoyed the yeah. atmosphere in the office so well yeah, so she's, yeah. she's doing the upstairs late in the evening well, but well, yeah. uh, well, you'll never retire, my friend. We know that you're too, too <laughs> curious there. So, so maybe as I shift uh, shift the conversation, I, I'm keen. Last time we saw each other, I think was uh, the Eureka event, think, yeah, believe, yeah. 2018 yeah. or something. And there's a yeah. lot of companies with new technologies, new doing different things. But you and I have been at it long enough, and you much longer than me. Um, but when we look forward in force technology. Um, mm. What gets you excited? Like, are there certain themes because you, you've developed software, you've dealt with LIDAR, you've dealt with mm. area-based inventories, individual tree inventories, you've dealt with space-borne uh, mapping, especially in support of carbon programs and mm. again, what is it, 30 plus uh, countries. But as we mm. look forward, like like on the website, the Arbonaut website, it talks about digital twins. What are some of those technologies that, that in your quote-unquote retired state which i do not believe <laughs> by the way uh what are those things that 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 gets gets your your mind excited and and eager for but, you know somehow i i'm not fundamentally a geek maybe <laughs> it's so i don't mind technology and i like uh, maybe algorithms are like my own home turf in a way i like devising algorithms and see how things are organized but uh, the way i see is that we I mean, somehow we are approaching this situation which we have in weather forecasting, climate forecasting. You integrate information and knowledge and understanding, both from mathematical models, from measurement data, but with forests, uh, even more so than with weather, you know, there's always people 
uh, animals, plants, you know, life, <laughs> meaning integrated into these forests. And, and for me, the biggest driver is in a way that we finally seem to be able to, to regard forests as somehow, you know, equal value as human beings, that we are not specifically only promoting human welfare. We, we have this, and especially when you work in Africa and Asia, Southeast Asia, we've had a lot of protests, you know, you have these uh, communities of people who've been dependent on forests in different ways for long times. In fact, this family of my wife uh, was pretty much like this. You know, Finland wasn't that far. They had, for example, no machinery, not even a tractor. Everything was done manually. They had five uh, five cows for milking, you know, <laughs> and uh, the only money they got from manual harvesting. Uh, my my late father-in-law was the wisest person I have ever known. He had only four years of education and three years in the Eastern Front in the war. And uh, that kind of matured him into such a balanced and uh, a person with foresight, you know, really. And he was earning his living by cutting his own trees and uh, selling them and uh, complaining with uh, that with uh, basically subsistence agriculture. But something in that community resembles me with what I see now in Africa and what I see over there. So I'd like to see ways that people who really are close to Paris, they, they would have a better and maybe a bit richer life being able to earn you know not not having to forsake your 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 uh, identity and so on but be able to afford a life that is not all sweat and toil you know <laughs> and yeah. and and this combination that these digital twins they can help planners to take these things into account so it's this integration of all this understanding in digital twins and then having to put that to good use which is you know balanced in economic ecological and social terms yeah. that's what drives me yeah. that's why i you know <laughs> i never made much money on urbano because that wasn't the first purpose anyway it was it was to have science have a positive impact on this uh, world and i hope we're still heading in that same direction yeah, well, I, I I can say you know the work you've done has has had an impact, like for sure on the the commercial side, right? And and there's always time to 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 keep uh, doing that research elsewhere. So thinking of the international community, I'm I'm curious to know because I can sense that passion there as I ask you, like mm -hmm. you know, this is where I'm going, this is where my interests are, my my energies, you know, bettering the lives of of people and and their lands. Mm -hmm. Is there a a memorable project overseas that maybe tugged your heart or made you cry out of frustration or is there, is, what's the fun story you can share with this guy? Okay. There's, there's any number of uh, projects, but uh, one of my favorites uh, where I didn't, I wasn't really personally involved, but Arbonaut was, was the project we did in Bhutan. You know, Bhutan has some of the most beautiful forests on earth. And they have this constitution, which, uh, you know, constitutionalizes happiness. You have to, our first proposal didn't meet the gross na happiness, national happiness index. <laughs> and oh, only the second one did. And uh, then we had this team occasionally visiting Timbu and working, you know, it's a medieval state, which is Buddhist, has a very, uh, how to say, uh, very uh, enlightened king right now which has regulated tourism, for example, you 
have a limited number of tourists and go. It's, it's rather expensive to go there, but you go there for genuity, this this sort of facing the, the community and the people. And so we also found uh, very competent uh, partners in IT technology in of all places in Bhutan <laughs> wow. that were able to integrate our system to the local government. Uh, the challenge came when COVID hit us and uh, they went to lockdown, Chinese style. Uh, in fact, to the point you couldn't leave your house in, in Timbu. And so our, our project was postponed by uh, half a year, if not a year, by the fact that our Bhutanese team inside Timbu couldn't go to the Ministry of Forests <laughs> to install systems because of COVID restrictions. Uh, but COVID passed and, uh, and and that was done. And, and the system we built there is a simple decision support system, which checks that whenever any construction in forest is being planned, it checks if it violates any of the existing conservation laws and policies. So it, whether it's a road or a or a power line, you know, check and then you adjust as, as needed. So of course, every society needs the infrastructure, but uh, they are the most uh, careful custodians of the forest of any any other place on earth I know. So I greatly admire them. And, and, and this is maybe a good project to remember. I, I would have a lot of <laughs> projects where, <laughs> where a lot of adventure uh, has happened. That's the other side, you know, the like, uh, okay, there are accidents. Yeah, all right. Let, let me tell one more. This is, uh, it's it's in Nepal, neighboring uh, neighboring place, but this is good. Um, we had a measurement project there where we had to take uh, field plots and we had local crews who, uh, who uh, went out and measured, uh, you know, in Nepal, like in Bhutan, it's, it's pretty tough, you know, <laughs> you yeah. need to climb a lot and then you find this. And, and I found it somehow comical that we, our random um, selection algorithm points to a place somewhere where you have to go and measure. So there are statistical validity. And this thing may be like, Two kilometers up next to a gorge and and whatever but on one occasion they they uh, uh, the team came finally after a long climb into their site and then they phoned back there, there was still a, a mobile phone field and said what do we do there's a python on a plot <laughs> and, you know my team it's manager... not a little python i'm sure it's one of those <laughs> yeah, yeah, ginormous yeah. yeah okay so and pythons are not that you know they, they're not disturbed and they don't want to move so so what do i do and and, and i had this danish special forces guy who was doing my man still a very good friend of mine and uh, what would you think a special forces guy suggest what do you do to, to a python on the plot side, you know, oh, they, on one they, side, they otherwise they, wasted the whole day if they, I, if they. I feel like on one side, the, this Danish special forces guy would just jump on the python and arm wrestle it out of the plot. But, uh, <laughs> uh, well, I, I, I don't know. Drop a little fruit. Well, and... you know, he, he was remote actually. He was he was the manager in in Kathmandu or somewhere. Oh, okay. And the, the field crew was, you know, he had several field crews and he couldn't join them all. So, I don't. I couldn't. I. Yeah, I, yeah, no, I, I got nothing for it. I'm still processing that there is a Python on the, the plot. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, so his instruction was sing to it. <laughs> sing to it. Sing to the Python. <laughs> and apparently, melody was well chosen because the Python decided not to take this disturbance and slithered away. 
<laughs> and they were able to complete this uh, this measurement plus. So is that actual fact? If you sing, well, I, I I was told it by the by the crews participating and so on, and I have no reason to uh, assume that Thomas would lie. He does have a lively imagination, but uh, I've seen him perform tricks that are much more incredible than this with my own eyes. So I, <laughs> as far as I know, <laughs> this is true. I feel like you and I have a trip coming up, my friend, to Nepal uh, to go find a random plot with a python on it. And I'm going to sit there. I'm going to use my iPhone and scan it with LiDAR for contact. And then I'm going to video you as you sing to it to see what happens. And if it goes out, I'm going to yeah. run faster than you. I, you're on your own with the singing side. But what an incredible story. I would not never have thought of singing to a python would yeah do the trick but amazing amazing yeah yeah and maybe it kind of rhymes you know with my view of the forest and so on so these sort of things happen and this is what makes it so magical you know absolutely Absolutely. Mm -hmm. so as as we look to wind down a lot here a lot of different views you shared some of your technology or your rich history of of where you how you started i love that story Mm -hmm. less less the the tragic part uh with your Mm -hmm. your your brother-in-law there and and where you are today so so obviously with Arbonaut, you're still in business doing stuff innovating on different fronts so if there's something in this podcast that someone heard or, or they saw in the video and they wanted to learn more what's the best way for folks to to get a hold of you is it by email linkedin or or website how would folks get a hold of you tuomo I, I would imagine LinkedIn is a good way to start. I mean, I will I will certainly answer anybody who contacts me there, uh, almost anybody. <laughs> and and we have a very good uh, media person in, in, in Darya Smirnova who, who does our LinkedIn posting. So it gives the most authentic picture of life at Arbonaut and our project. So it's a good way. So by all means, uh, be in touch and I'll really appreciate you, Kevin, for having invited me uh, here and uh, having this contact to Canada. It's we've long tried to get something uh, serious going in Canada. We, we've tra- started something almost in every province, but uh, so far no real projects. So I'm I'm really looking forward if there's a way to 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 get. And we always want to work with local partners. You know that's that's Arbonaut only has offices, two offices both in Finland. So all our activity in other countries is based on local people and local organizations uh, partnering with us. So. Sure. Please feel free to touch. And Absolutely. And that so. goes to everyone listening as well. Big on partnerships and opportunities. So so feel free to, to reach out to the Arbonaut uh, team. So so Tuomo, I know it's nine o'clock uh, in, mm. in Finland right now. And is it still sunny out or has the sun finally gone down? No, unfortunately, the sun has sunk. But you know, we're approaching midsummer and we are at 63rd latitude. I know. I so know. <laughs> very soon we enter the period when dark, so in, all the nights will be light, you know, and it's it's, it's well, so well, beautiful. Well, when we met in Helsinki way back then, I, I took a detour and visited some friends in, in Stockholm in Sweden, and right. it was not that warm. There was sunlight, <laughs> but everyone was outside having, drinking a, a beer, and I was thinking, I'm I'm Canadian, and, and, and I like cool weather, but this was another level, like... I was like, there's so many of you enjoying that, but it was daylight. It was incredible. It was, it was yeah. hard to sleep, but I know you guys have techniques to deal with that. But, uh, but yeah, no, I appreciate you carving some time out for, for me uh, late in your evening to, to chat Please and share so. your story and, and definitely appreciate that. I look forward to, to seeing you in person 
one of these days, hopefully soon. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Uh, looking forward to that, Kevin. And thanks very much. And thanks also to uh, everybody or anybody who's been listening to this. So sure. I hope awesome. to have some contact with them. Uh, okay. All, you. all right. Sounds good. Well, thanks for your time and, and we'll keep in touch. Yeah. Thanks, Kevin. Yeah. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye for now.